Warning, the podcast you're about to listen to may contain graphic descriptions of violent assaults, murder, and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Murder Police Podcast, The Murder of Alex Johnson, Part 2 of 4. So now we've got that Mark, and by Mr. Ballard's statement, Mark and Tiny were together, and Mark was the last one to see Alex, and their story is the one that has holes in it. So at this point, uh, Chris had been on the department or in the unit two to three years, probably more than that, before I came up to homicide, and he was kind of my mentor. And it's like, let the evidence guide your theory don't get a theory because then you will start picking evidence that fits your theory so we were very careful even though mr ballard had had a a record of kidnapping and robbery violent crime it's like oh okay that that's important but that we're not gonna you know laser focus on these guys but after seeing the video uh speaking to more people and we were able to get a search warrant for mr taylor's phone I'd say two, three days in, we were comfortable in thinking that Mr. Taylor and Mr. Ballard had something to do with Mr. Johnson's death. And we did. We believed he was deceased at that time. There was no more. This wasn't a missing persons case. It was going to try to find Alex's body and then prove that someone had murdered him and figure out who that was. So two to three days, I think we were comfortable in focusing in on these guys as our suspect. You had mentioned the cell phone records. Did you check... And I'm sure you did, but on Alex's phone, was there just no more activity? Did it ping anywhere? Did Yeah, it was, uh, let's see, he and Lisa got off the phone, let's say 8.30-ish on the 20th. I believe the last activity Mr. Johnson had on his phone was around a little after 9 o'clock. And the last ping, which is a term that we use that shows the location or general location, uh, the the area that your phone was at at a certain date and time, was near Clay's Ferry Bridge on I-75. Now, so, was that near where his apartment was? No, he had actually lived downtown and in Kenwick neighborhood. And it also, with that ping showing at Clay's Mill Bridge, that further verified that, okay, he didn't go to the gorge and wasn't camping. Nobody that we spoke with could provide us any logical reason that Alex Johnson was on I-75. Now, if he'd gone back to Bowling Green, he would have been on 64, the parkway. But uh, this and then it just terminated. So we knew that there was no further activity since uh, nine o'clock on the 20th. What's the area like where the ping was? Can you describe that visually for people? It was a large area. The further you get out in the county, the larger the radius is for your ping. Like if you're downtown, it can be something like 20 meters. But if you get out in the county, it can be up to 1,800 meters, which is a really large area. But it was uh, the epicenter of the ping was roughly around Clay's Ferry Bridge, which is it's just I-75 in the river and woods at that point. There is a couple of bars in that location down by the river. 
there's not a lot of activity by those bars, but it, it, those bars are well known. During the summertime, they'll have music, and but in the wintertime, no one really, it's secluded, so no one really goes down there. That's what I was getting at. It's pretty rural. And uh, I, do y'all remember on patrol that if you went to a, a fight at one of those bars that you would say goodbye at the top of the hill and because you, your radio yes. didn't work at the bar? Yeah. Those are memories right there of technology. Is that actually is like going on the dark side of the moon as an astronaut? Is that yeah. everybody wished you well and call when you get to the back of the top of the hill? Yeah, and I think that's what Chris was going to speak of. One of those bars was called Riptides at the time, and both Mark and Tiny were working there. Tiny was a bouncer and Mark was a bartender, so that's where they'd forged their friendship. I was going to ask: Were these two, with having Tiny's background the way he had, seeing Mark? Was Mark a person that you would peg as a friend of his? Was he? Did he have a like criminal background as Tiny? No, I think there was very minimal. I mean, uh, Chris probably had a worse criminal record than Mark. <laughs> oh, Chris! <laughs> I was I was putting a swing set together on the playground. It was just misunderstood. Um, no, I would I would venture to say that Mark didn't view Tiny as a friend. No. Really? I think it, he viewed him as an employee because he did pay Tiny to be with him and follow him into these clubs. And he would call and rent tables for Mark Taylor in the clubs in advance. And Yeah, I think Mark. So he and, was his personal assistant, if you will. Yeah, Luana Redcorn did a really good job at trial showing that uh, Mr. Taylor felt that he was well above Mr. Ballard's station in life and treated him as such. And we have video to kind of document that, you know, Mr. Ballard opening the back passenger door for Mr. Taylor to get in. And then he'd go back and be his chauffeur and he was opening doors for him to go into buildings. It's uh, yeah. Mr. Taylor is uh, I had not seen the likes of him. I think that's point. what's cool about that video is we usually look at it as date and time stamps. Okay. You were here, but man, to be able to tell a story like that and, and, and work that into it later, that's fantastic. What a, what a value. I would say this is the first case that I've worked uh, that we got a video play-by-play play for the whole evening. And I will say this, the whole entire unit did very well in tracking down every video. We, it was cold, and we walked the neighborhoods to find video because people have surveillance videos now. And we went door-to-door, found home surveillance. We found business surveillance, and we even uh, found surveillance that uh, Mark Taylor had no clue was watching his building. Yeah, it, was a, it really was a team effort, and it was tough because – the weather, Chris mentioned before, that entire month, it felt like it was two degrees every day. So, I mean, it's our job. I'm not, I'm not crying and complaining. But when you spend hours knocking on doors, it, you know, when it's two degrees outside, that's arduous work. And you're dotting every I, crossing every T because, you know, you have an important job to do and you don't want to let the family down. So it took a lot of work. And Chris is right. It was a bunch of different pieces that we were able to get. And at the end, I've never had a case where you have a, a puzzle and you've got every piece laid out. It just doesn't happen that way. You hope to get as many pieces as you possibly can, and then you're able to tell this is exactly what happened. And this is one of those cases. And, you know, we're talking about three days later, we believe Mark Taylor and Mr. Ballard are responsible for his death. We have zero evidence of this. It is a belief, and that's all we have. So there was a stressful four or five days of 
we know this is what happened, but how are we going to prove it? Where is the evidence? Where are we going to look to find this evidence? And uh, it, Chris and I actually got heated at each other a couple of times. It's just the frustration of spinning your wheels, knowing more than likely what happened. But and then the fear starts to set in. Is this guy going to get away with it on my watch? That's something you never want to deal with, sure. especially when you got at this point, we believed Alex was a, a truly innocent victim. Um, so it was scary. And Chris, bless his heart, was having to deal with the family. He was their first point of contact and they would call him constantly. Are there any updates? Have you learned anything new? And after about the fifth day, he's like, can you please start taking some calls? He's like, I can't keep telling them, no, we don't know anything new. Because it's it, he knows it's disheartening for the family and it's frustrating for him, so that's that kind of stuff wears on us as human beings, not just investigators. So it was a really difficult time. That first week was rough. Anyone told me, I mean, both of you all have done cold case work, right? Yes. How many murder books are up there where there's somebody in that book that you know? I mean, really deep down, just like in that, and it sits. You know, as Franz Wolf used to say, I'm only one good witness away. Yeah. <laughs> and I love Franz. I used to love it when you'd say that. Yeah. But seriously, the frustration of the idea and, and, and what do you take back to the family? I, I hear you completely on that. That's got to be rough. And it, what's even worse is you be, you become close, if this makes any sense to any listener, you become close to that victim because you have dealt into their most private parts of their lives. By the time you go through their computer, by the time you go through their cell phone, you go through their closet, and then you talk to family members and friends, you get a pretty good picture of who that victim is. And that's why Rob said at the beginning, uh, Alex was well-liked. I mean, Entered beard contests. That's he was famous for entering the beard contests, and everybody loved him. He joke about it to tell parents when parents would ask you, "You you really think he's dead?" What do you? How do you answer that? Right? You in your heart know, as an experienced detective, you know he's he's probably dead. It's dead of winter, and it was really cold out for five days. We couldn't find him. So, well, and I think also what I I don't know if the listeners can can fully grasp or understand is. That job for you all just didn't end at five o'clock. The families were probably calling you all hours of the night and you can't not answer. Right. And you all just didn't get to go home to your families because it's five or because it's cold or snowing. And that job doesn't end. And I think sometimes TV shows lead us to think it's either done super quick or we're just doing an eight and we're punching out at five. And and it's not like that. I, I remember when David was still with Lexington Police, that phone when he was over that unit, rang all night long, it, multiple times all night long. Um, I think I was more excited about that phone ringing than you were. That was my biggest re- excitement about retiring is that when the call came at 3.30 in the morning, I wouldn't get 17 questions on a two-line text. But I'll say, too, that I wasn't dealing with what they were dealing with. Absolutely, I was, I was, yeah. it, To me, that was like getting the news a little bit early. But that relationship with those victims' families is – to me, was probably the most special thing about that mm-hmm. in the advocacy. Because I remember I had a, a widow of a victim, and it was kind of cute back before we before we had uh, uh, like the encrypted scanners and uh, radials. Donna Renfro, her husband was murdered up at Plantation Liquor. And if I got out on the radio with something, I swear Donna would call my then pager, and I'd call her back, and she goes, hmm, are you doing something other than his case? And she wasn't digging at me but that's how much they pay attention and rely on you that uh 
that they, they listen. So that relationship, you're right. You get to know those people better than some of your own family. Well, and I think also what people don't understand is this may not be your all's only case. It probably wasn't your only case. So you aren't just working this and the cases don't stop coming in because you've already got a case. If there's another murder that next night, you all are on that too. And so that's a that's a heavy workload. Yeah, the uh, for a murder like this, the first 48 hours, it's all hands on deck. But after that, the you know, the initial leads, if they're dead ending or they need to be pursued further, they'll go back to their caseload and as well they should because they have other important cases. So it's left up to the lead detective and the the secondary detective to carry that case. And after the first two days, really, it's it's our burden to bear. Um, so it's and we that really is our only case for a while. Like they will give us at least a week or two, uh, depending on the magnitude of the case, it, whether it be a high-profile case they, where they want quick resolution, your sergeants and lieutenants are pretty great about it. It's like, you're not getting anything else assigned right now. Just work this, do whatever you need to do. So, And Lexington's always been great about that in the department and that unit specifically of recognizing this is going to take a while, guys. We'll, we won't put anything else on your plate for at least two weeks. So Rob said 48 hours is the most important part. And uh, – <laughs> We had already reached 48 hours before the detectives even received the call. Right. And that's why I don't want to toot the unit torn, that homicide unit at that time. But we knew we still could get the job done if we just stuck to it. So December 20th was the last time he was seen. December 23rd, his sister made a missing persons report. And the homicide unit doesn't get called until the 24th. And then... By the time we get Alex's phone, it's December 30th. So that gives you a timeline of what we were working with there and, and the unit just working as a team. One more odd thing about, uh, I believe I mentioned we did a search warrant for Mr. Taylor's phone. We knew where he lived, so Chris and I were busy working. So we had a, a patrol officer assigned to watch his house. And when he left and got in his car, pulled him over and just served the search warrants. Like, And I believe it was Officer Conway. Um, that uh, issued the the search warrant to Mr. Taylor and took the phone from Mr. Taylor, brought it to headquarters, and Chris and I had it forensically uh, examined. And I believe 10 minutes before we obtained Mr. Taylor's phone, he had sent a text to Alex Johnson's phone saying, I'm really sorry, man. I love you. Obviously, that's bizarre and strange and ominous. But uh, again, if we'd have served it 10 minutes earlier, we wouldn't have you that wouldn't piece have of it. information. Um, we were excited about that, but Chris and I have been in the game long enough where we know a good defense attorney can just like, he's just saying he's sorry that you're gone and he loves you. It's it's nothing, no criminal intent, but we knew that the message behind it. And that was kind of the last piece of good information that we had um, before January 6th was a real important day for us. It's when we learned that there were uh, potentially a 911 call in Mr. Johnson's neighborhood roughly the time he got off the phone with uh, Lisa Horobin. And so we were able to pull those calls, and there were two separate calls that stated that there's a moving disorder. Uh, these guys are trying to get this guy in a car. Um, it's in the only description they gave was, I believe, a silver passenger car. They're heading towards Winchester Road. Oh, officers were dispatched there, but they couldn't find anything. And again, 
those type of calls go out quite often in Lexington. And all you can really do is go search for the little bit of information that they provided on the calls. But to us, with the location and the the seriousness of the call from what it sounded like, we felt that uh, that could possibly be related to Mr. Johnson's disappearance. So that's when Chris mentioned that we hit the streets, start knocking on doors and looking for video. And we were very fortunate that neighbors, businesses had split seconds of video, several split seconds that we could put together and, and make a string of events. And we saw, um, were able to see on video, what appeared to be a late 90s e-model Mercedes uh, driving towards the back of National Avenue with a person's leg sticking out the, the passenger window. And I believe I recall it was a sock. He didn't have a shoe on that foot, which will be important later. And so then what detectives get, oh, we got a vehicle description. We do a vehicle history search on Mr. Ballard and Mr. Taylor and find that Mr. Ballard had, I believe, a 1998 e-model Mercedes Benz. So again, it's the excitement is starting to build where I was like, okay, we've got a starting point now. And so Lieutenant James Curlis, he's retired now, but always used to say in an investigation, he's like, you're looking at a sweater. Tearing apart a sweater is not an easy thing to do. He goes, but if you can get your finger and a thumb on a loose piece of thread, he goes, you can pull that sweater apart very easily. He goes, the key is finding that loose thread. And those videos were our loose thread. And you obtained those just by strictly knocking on doors, asking, can I see? So you started at his residence, which was downtown, and went out from there until you pieced together. Yeah, the, the 911 callers uh, gave a, dis, uh, a direction of travel from the spot that she said that there was fighting in the car. So we just started walking down that street, knocking on doors, and that video led to another video, which led to the video on National Avenue that showed a you know, that Mercedes pulling into a parking lot um, with a, a foot hanging outside. And then the next video was pretty damning. Um, I'll let Chris go ahead and talk about that, what we saw. Uh, again, as I say, everybody take, plays a part in solving these crimes. And a business owner on National Avenue had security cameras set up. And he had cameras just spread throughout his, his building, which we thank him forever for this. Thanks to this case, he, we see the Mercedes pull into the very back of the lot, right up against a fence. And you see the dome light comes on and you can see a person get out of the back. You see arm motion, several, we, did we count 30? 30 to 40 arm strikes coming down on something and the video wasn't great like we couldn't say oh that's mark taylor that's mr ballard that's alex it was off at a distance it was grainy but you could see human movement in this it looked like a beating and assault and thankfully thankfully mr ballard is the size that he was we could differentiate between mr ballard and mr taylor based on their size and it was very clear that mr taylor was doing the beating in that parking lot could you see the person he was beating or was the person in that vehicle? They were in the back seat and we believe their head was almost poking out and Mr. Taylor was overhand hitting Mr. Johnson. Uh, we couldn't tell if there was an instrument. Later, we learned from Mr. Ballard that he believed it was a, like a knife sharpener, almost a, a rod type instrument with a handle. We were never able to recover that, um, but it looked like he had a, an instrument in his hand was beating Mr. Johnson. 
thank goodness for Ballard one time for his size, because if you talk to jury members, even on Mr. Ballard's history, they would point the finger at Mr. Ballard doing this crime. But on that video, you can see he gets out of the driver's side several moments after you see the striking of whoever's in that back seat. He gets out, he pulls, we know it's Alex, so we, he pulls him into the back, pulls him so he can get the door closed and shuts the door and he drives Mark Taylor away. And uh, you see the dome light go out and then you see him pulling out of that parking lot. But at, the, his size saved him on that video. Oh, yeah, because you could feel the defense thing turning oh. right there. Then the fingers just get pointed and it'd be rough for anybody. To, I honestly to think that, that uh, Mr. Ballard would have been convicted. Mr. Taylor probably would have got a lesser charge of like facilitation or something sure. because he was very charming, charismatic on the stand. Uh, Luana Redcorn did a fantastic job crossing him. Um, so I'm not sure how effective it would have been, but I could very easily see jurors buying. He's a good looking guy. I could I could see a lot of people. A lot of people. We only need one, don't we? You know, that's it. It only to takes hang one. that juror. So it's a uh, yeah. For like Chris said, for once, I was really glad that Mr. Ballard was so large because it was very easy to determine who was doing the striking. So he was just sitting in the front seat, in the driver's seat, while Mark was hitting Alex, just mm-hmm. sitting there, and then he gets out. And I guess closes Alex back into the back seat and then gets back into the driver's seat. And then they drive off. And then they drive off. And that's where we kind of lost video feed. But through our initial interviews that we knew that Mr. Taylor uh, had a glass blowing business and operated out of a garage on Quinshire Court, which is on a little alley off of Jefferson Street between Short and 2nd Street, I believe. And went back there, did some surveillance and found that the building right in front of that garage had surveillance video. We knocked on that door for three days trying to get people doing property records. We finally found the individual. He was actually in San Francisco at the time, but was extremely cooperative, gave us passcodes to get into the building, um, even had a, a tech, one of his tech engineers meet us to help download the video. And it was really from there. That's when the case really started to blow up what we were able to observe on his video. What was the significance of that video versus when you lost them on National Avenue? And what led you to that video? Just doing our due diligence. We knew where Mark Taylor lived. We checked to see if there was video of there. Maybe they went back to his house. We were unsuccessful in that. Found out like some friends locations. Maybe they went there and we found out that where his business was so obviously we went there and we're fortunate enough to find some video that was quite damning what did you see in that video it was well it, it was bizarre i believe it was dave richardson and dave sadler chris and i were out interviewing people getting frustrated as usual arguing yelling at each other um then dave richardson calls and says, hey, uh, you all need to get over here. We've got some important video. And then I remember Dave Sadler says, like, yeah, it's some breaking bad shit. So we were excited. We got there. Um, Dave Richardson's great with video equipment. Man, he was very important, this investigation, being able to pull all that together. It was earlier in the evening we see the Mercedes pull in. This garage has four different garage doors or bay doors. See the Mercedes pull up, um, go into the garage, and then we see this huge 
older model F three fifty Ford pull into one of the the bays. It's like oh, that's odd, but what we saw uh, going in was that the truck bed was empty, and then later that evening it left and came back, and what we saw in that video was in the bed of the truck was a 55-gallon drum. And so we start, God, this was probably like five hours of video, real time we were watching, a lot of leaving and coming. Um, and then the time frame, because we know based on the video from the parking or the National Avenue, they left at a certain time, and 10 minutes later, we see the Mercedes pull into the garage again. 20 minutes later, we see the truck leave again with the barrel. An hour later, the truck comes back. There's no barrel in the truck. So that's what Sadler was talking about, the Breaking Bad shit. It was, we had firmly believed at that point, the Mercedes came with Alex Johnson's body in it. It was transferred to that 55-gallon drum, and Mr. Ballard left in the truck with the drum and then returned without it. And knowing what we know about their work history at Riptides, Alex Johnson's cell phone pinging at Clay's Ferry Bridge, we believe that they'd taken him to the Kentucky River there and dumped his body. So at that point, and, and by the way, about what time of day, day or night was this when you see the truck coming and going? Oh, it's uh, roughly 9, 10 when is when they come into the garage. Trust. Right. And then 20 minutes in the garage, and so the truck leaves at roughly 9.30, 9.40 and comes back at 10.40, and then they leave again. And I believe there's another car that showed up for a small drug deal. Yes, there was another couple that pulled up and surprised them. Yeah. And they knocked on the side door of the garage. Yeah, and the body had just left. So those were two fortunate people just trying to buy a small amount of marijuana that missed that. So Yeah, because that makes you wonder if they'd seen too much. Right. How, yeah. how this could have because really Because we know, too, that that was quite a messy scene in the garage. Chris interviewed a person after the arrest that was hired by Mr. Taylor to come clean the garage, said some bad stuff had happened, just clean it. And you've got to come clean it between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. And so that was an odd request. So apparently there was quite a a mess at the garage. So, yes, those people had gone in at a certain time. They may have seen something and who knows what may have happened. So our next step for video, because this is a this is what juries love. So we were trying to do say, okay, this is great evidence for a warrant. Super. So what we have to do next is how do we show that they went towards riptides? Not a lot of people know this. Uh, this is I learned this doing this case. But you know our public transit system, they have video camera inside and outside their buses. So we collected, we saw that there was a bus that pulled ahead of the, the truck. So we collected that video to show what direction they went after leaving the garage. Yeah. So we had that video. Also, that gave us the license plate of the truck so we knew who the registered owner was. We tracked them down and found that it was a family friend of Mr. Ballard's and confirmed that, yeah, he asked to borrow the truck uh, the week of the 20th. So that puts Mr. Ballard in possession of that truck, which is important because we can see the truck come and go, but we can't put Mr. Ballard in that truck. So we now know that that registered vehicle belongs to an individual that gave it to Mr. Ballard, so he would be in possession of that vehicle. That is too cool. I, I can see y'all smiling now. I'd be smiling oh, as well. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So you went just on a hunch 
to riptides at that point or had you not gone on we did, at that point? We did the typical detective, let's go down in the cold when it's light out and take a look. And we searched everywhere. I bet, we really we, did. It wasn't just once. Chris and I went down there three or four times. But as he mentioned, the weather was horrible and there was a lot of rain. So the river was high. So you couldn't really see anything. So we were kind of like, what the hell are we doing down here again? Yeah, but it was just frustration, curiosity that kept leading us back to the river. Because in our gut, we felt that, I mean, and even they had a dock, a cement dock leading down to the river. It was a perfect place to back up a truck and heave that in. So that's we really felt that's what had happened. Um, just as we've all talked about before, knowing one thing is different than proving it. Well, and you're right that the Kentucky River changes by the hour. Yes. After it's incredible what how it'll ebb and flow and the, the depth and everything. It's completely unreliable. So you go there and there's nothing and you go back and there's nothing. So then what do you do? You you don't see anything. Where do you go from there? Well, we have these things in our unit called the round table. So when you come up against the wall and you think you're out of leads, you present your case to all the detectives and then all detectives make their suggestions. And if there's something that you haven't done, then what's what's in the harm of trying it, right? So <laughs> Steve, uh, as we mentioned before, he's a sharp guy. So he volunteers to get a 50-gallon barrel and put about as much weight as Alex was, seal it up, and throw it into the river and see where the current is going to take it and see where it ends. And then we were going to get the fire department involved with their divers to see if we could locate the barrel. So that was what we were going to do. Right. Um, at this point, with all the video and knowing that Mark Taylor and Tiny Ballard were together and we can – their cell phone – data confirmed their location during all this stuff so we knew it was them um but at that point we kind of felt like i don't know how much more information we're gonna get so we did the round table like chris was talking about put together a powerpoint presentation played it for our lieutenant he's like it's good he's like i think you're good to go but we work very, very closely with the Commonwealth Attorney's Office. In a case like this, we're not going to blindside them with an arrest without getting their input of something like – because they do – they oftentimes come up with ideas like, you're thinking like an attorney. I'm just simply thinking like an investigator, and they need that You know, because the important thing is getting a conviction, not an arrest. So we have a very close relationship with them, and we did a presentation for Mr. Larson's entire office at the time, and – Again, we still hadn't found a body, and Fayette County has never tried a murder case without the presence of a body. Had you not done the roundtable event yet? We had, but— Oh, you did do it prior to this. Yeah, and then we presented the same thing to Mr. Larson's office, and— What were the results of the roundtable idea? There were concerns because of we hadn't found the body, and to— it's difficult to prove somebody killed somebody, but now you have to prove that they're actually dead if you don't have the body. No, I mean, did you actually carry out the drum? Well, we this was all happening at the same time at right. the round table. So yeah. as we're doing the presentation, Steve's getting the barrels ready for the next day because we were going to get everything planned out and see what Mr. Larson's office was going to do if we agreed. And we let him know our what our future steps were going to be. Okay. Yeah. And it was, and like you'd said, Dave, it's like that current 
changes daily, if not hourly. So it was something we felt we should do. I still thought it was a good idea. Well, well was Steve going to get in a barrel himself? He's <laughs> no. not that brave. Well, no. I was going to say no. we have to yeah. question his dedication at this yeah. point. But that, that's later. We'll do that later. So I don't know how much that would have how much information that would have provided. You'd have to have almost the exact conditions that day to to get an accurate estimate. But to Mr. Larson's credit, he's like, he's like, well, we've never done a murder in Fayette County without a body. He goes, but I think you're there. And we're like, obviously, our next step is to confront Mr. Ballard on his lies. So that's what we want to know. It's like, if he requests an attorney and we don't get to talk to Mr. Taylor or Mr. Ballard anymore, are you good with an arrest? And he said yes. So that took some guts on his part. I think I mentioned I went to a cold case seminar in D.C. and they were talking about no body prosecutions. They said up to 2018, there'd only been 399 no body prosecution attempts in the United States since 1800. So that's 300 years and only 400. So it's it's very rare that you are able to even try it. So we were really appreciative of Mr. Larson's support and belief in us to go ahead and move forward if Mr. Ballard didn't talk. And I was going to say that knowing uh, Ray in his office, that was a huge degree of trust in you all. I mean, I don't don't even think he uses the word risk. I think that once he trusts you, and he says yes. That that's that's a testament to how Howard you are working and what you were able to bring to. Him. Yeah, and uh, typically Ray's office isn't shy about trying cases. You know, uh, there are several offices and attorneys that worry about their clearance rate and such. He just believed that you know we're going to give her a try. We're going to try for justice. We're not guaranteeing anything, but we believe there's enough, and we're not afraid to fight. Hey, you know there's more to the story, so go download the next episode like the true crime fan that you are. The Murder Police Podcast is hosted by Wendy and David Lyons and was created to honor the lives of crime victims so their names are never forgotten. It is produced, recorded, and edited by David Lyons. The Murder Police Podcast can be found on your favorite Apple or Android podcast platform as well as at murderpolicepodcast.com, which is our website and has show notes for imagery and audio and video files related to the cases you're going to hear. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, LinkedIn, and YouTube, which has closed captions available for those that are hearing impaired. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe for more and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your podcast from. Subscribe to the Murder Police Podcast and set your player to automatically download new episodes so you get the new ones as soon as they drop. And please tell your friends. Lock it down, Judy.